my take is we don't want to think too hard about this. It is the week of July 12th, and welcome to episode 88 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Jamil Jaffer, an SI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Les Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Rob Walker, NSI Visiting Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group. Returning guest Amira Valiani, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Senior Advisor to the Office of the Deputy National Security Advisor. And I'm Grant Haver, NSI Policy Program Manager. So folks, the president of Haiti was assassinated last week, and the country has descended even more than usual into violence and chaos. There are two people claiming to be president of Haiti. There are two people claiming to be prime minister of Haiti. One of those, Claude Joseph, appears to have a little more legitimacy than the others. He has been calling upon the U.S. and the United Nations to send troops into Haiti to help stabilize the situation. There's a huge crisis of governmental legitimacy in Haiti. The legislature, the parliament is non-functioning. The Supreme Court is non-functioning. Many of the elections that have been scheduled in the last few years have just not taken place. Uh, it It is as bad a crisis as you can have for democratic legitimacy. How should the Biden administration be responding to this, particularly to the call for troops to come in and help stabilize the country? Amira, do you want to go first? I'll admit that I'm not uh, an expert on on Haitian politics. So as I I was doing research on the backstory here, I thought it was pretty interesting to note that the U.S. actually has a previous history of sending troops into Haiti in the wake of an assassination. And the last time a president in Haiti was assassinated back in 1915, um, the United States sent troops to help stabilize the situation. And, you know, they were successful in the short term, but they were also there for about 20 years. And so there's a really deep history of the United States uh, intervening in Haiti in exactly this kind of situation. And I think it's one that we should keep in mind because uh, it's certainly on the lines of the Haitian people as we decide what to do here. In my mind, it feels like um, you know swift action to stabilize the situation, stabilize infrastructure, and ensure you know a timetable, reasonable timetable towards democratic elections makes a lot of sense. But it seems like going it alone might not be the best scenario here. So if I if I were in the Biden administration right now, I'm, I'm sure I'd be calling up uh, the Organization of American States, Canada, France, uh, maybe going to the UN and figuring out how to put together an international coalition to go in and help stabilize the situation with a, with a clear plan for when to get out. Probably something along the lines of, you know, a mission of protecting infrastructure, helping set the timetable towards elections, and then leaving after some sort of parliamentary elections maybe later this year. Jamil, what's your take? There's not exactly uh, hard U.S. national interests at stake here, but it is definitely a situation of concern. How should we be responding? Well, you know, it's not like the uh, U.S. hasn't uh, viewed Haiti as being in our sphere of influence for a long time. It's obviously a, uh, you know, an important part of the the, the situation in the Caribbean. Uh, it's, it's close to the United States. I, I think it's critical uh, that the U.S. take action to restore peace and order in Haiti. Um, and uh, and sometimes that means deploying U.S. forces, right? In this case, it probably will. Uh, now, whether we do that in cooperation with the OAS or other regional powers, so be it. But let's be clear. The United States is the power in the region. It is the world's remaining global superpower, even though we don't like to act like it anymore. Um, and it's incumbent upon us in our area uh, to uh, to help restore stability. Now, uh, given that Haiti, uh, it's it's unclear what that means in the context of Haiti, I think we're going to have to have a point of view on that. Uh, one of the challenges is we're now in the third administration or, or th- three consecutive presidents, I should say, uh, that, have see- that have sought to 
uh, step away from America's role in the world, to step back, uh, bring American forces home, end all endless wars. And, and like President Obama before him and President Trump before him, President Biden isn't inclined to get involved in any overseas military commitments. Uh, but here's the thing. Haiti is in our neck of the woods. If, 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 if we're not going to do it, nobody else will. It would be catastrophic if the U.S. did not get involved immediately to restore peace and order in, in Haiti. Grant, what's your take? I sort of find myself between kind of Amira and Jamil at points. I think it's going to be really vital that we have an international coalition so that America isn't seen as overstepping our bounds, even though they are our neighbor, because we don't have the Monroe Doctrine anymore. We're not going to create a U.S. sphere of influence. It's important to democracy in Haiti that this is seen as a, a global effort. I will say, though, that the stakes on this in terms of American national security are incredibly low, you know, whether or not Haiti continues to fail to develop and continues to destroy its own people is incredibly small potatoes in comparison to the millions of other problems that the United States faces. I think it's vital that we send in the military to ensure stability. But I think if we look at our track record with Puerto Rico, which is very, very close to Haiti and is actually a territory of the United States, our failure to actually develop the region and support the region towards a democratic and prosperous future is not something that looks like it's in the cards. So as much as I want to believe that America can do something really, really great in Haiti and that the Haitian people can come out of this stronger, more unified, more democratic, and more prosperous, I just haven't been convinced that the United States has the backbone and the willingness to do it. But Les, what do you think? This is your kind of area of interest. I don't know if I'm going to be between all you guys or if I'm going to be out on my own limb here. I think the U.S. has an obligation to respond. Uh, the U.S. has been involved in Haitian politics and Haitian history for going back decades. And yes, Amira, we were there a year, uh, a century ago. We were also there during the Clinton administration when we sent troops to depose a dictator uh, and try to bring about a democracy. It didn't work terrifically, but it had a salutary impact on Haiti. Frankly, I worry that Haiti will turn even more chaotic and more of a humanitarian crisis if we don't intervene, if we need the fig leaf of OAS or UN approval in some fashion to make it a little more palatable for the rest of the world. I'm totally fine with that. But to Jamil's point about pulling back from the world, I'll go even further. Plenty of people say the U.S. should not be the world's policeman. I actually think the U.S. should be the world's policeman because if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Haiti is vulnerable. It's at a wit's end. Really, no one else can do this. If someone else tries, it would be even more catastrophic. I think we have an obligation to the people of Haiti. And by the way, there's a million, over a million Haitian Americans. This is a country with very close uh, egalitarian ties to the United States. We have an obligation to be involved. We should be consulting with the Haitian expatriate community to the extent it's organized, but we should not be, should we, we should not shy away from a leadership role here. Jamil. And look, I reject this idea that, that the U.S. has no national security interests involved. There are massive national security interests involved. Our enemies don't think we're, we're a threat to them. Our allies don't think we're there for them. And so if we allow a catastrophic situation to develop in our own hemisphere and don't allow it to happen and allow it to continue forward, they're going to continue to believe that. They're going to continue to believe we don't, believe we don't support our allies. We don't oppose our enemies, right? This is the story of, of Barack Obama Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So until we're prepared to turn that narrative and convince the world that we are, that there is no better ally and no fiercer foe, right? And Haiti's an example of that. We've got to go in and restore peace and stability. If we don't do it in our backyard, somebody else will. And that's a huge problem. That is why American National Security Interests are involved. Yes, the small country. 
Yes, it's in the Caribbean. All those things are true. But the idea that we don't have national security of all, this is exactly that kind of wrong-headed thinking that has led us for almost 16 years to retreat from the globe and make everybody think we are not a steadfast ally nor a fierce enemy. Les and Jamil, I'd love to, to get your thoughts. Where does the extent to which America has to take responsibility for Haiti end. So should we look to try to have them be a free associated state like we have in some of the Pacific Island countries? Should we try to make them a territory? Otherwise, we're just there in a support mission, which we haven't proven to be able to actually positively impact Haiti since the Clinton, um, since Clinton sent in the military a number of years ago. So what, what does this look like? Grant, what does the end of yeah. this look like? Yeah, Grant, I think we... My take is we don't want to think too hard about this. Uh, this is a humanitarian situation. I agree with Jamil on a lot of the parts about how this will be seen uh, in the rest of the world. And we do have some national security interests here, although they're not huge. Uh, people are going to be watching how we behave. I think we need to immediately address the humanitarian situation. We can't let it spiral out of control. But at the same time, we have to be mindful that the political future of Haiti is up to Haitians. That is their job. Frankly, they've been failing miserably. Uh, for the last few years. And, and perhaps there are people to blame and the Haitian people can go through the process of doing that. But we should not presume uh, to be involved in their long-term political future. But if we're needed there as a Band-Aid to prevent greater loss of life and greater catastrophe from happening, I don't think we should be shy about it. Les, let me make sure I understand where you're coming from here because I, I think I'm, I'm on the same page, which is this is not a democracy-building mission. We're, you're not talking about sort of long-term, like long-term presence in Haiti. But you're saying we should be swift. We should address the humanitarian issues. And it would be great if we can get the OIS or the UN involved. But, but what's more important right now is to stabilize the country, one, for the sake of Haitians and, and their future, but also, two, so that the world sees that the United States is watching. And when we see these situations happen, especially in our own backyard, we will be there um, as, a, as a friend to our, to our friends. Uh, uh, yeah, Amira, I agree. I think uh, one of the things that's gotten a bad rap in the last, uh, you know, few decades since since Somalia really has been the idea of a U.S.-led humanitarian intervention. I remain convinced that we can do that in a smart way and in a good way if we're paying attention. Joe Biden may not make all the foreign policy decisions I think he should, but he's surrounded by a good team. They're solid. They're paying attention. They can, I think they can manage this in a way that is smart and they won't let themselves get extended into a place where uh, we have unforeseen circumstances or unforeseen consequences of what we're doing. I think I think this is something the U.S. can and should be doing. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with Les in, in partly and, and but disagree with you in, in two ways. Les, one, I don't agree that the U.S. should be the world's policeman, roaming around the world wherever we need to go and policing it up. That's not our job. It's not it's not the mission we should have. This is our own backyard. That's what's different about Haiti than all these other ones. I also don't believe that the U.S. should have at all times a roving humanitarian mission, you know, sort of a responsibility to protect uh, this doctrine that uh, that Samantha Power and the, and the Obama administration trotted out when convenient um, and then abandoned uh, when when, it go, when the going got tough in Libya and other places. Um, uh, what I do believe um, is that uh, in our own hemisphere, and I do believe that there is still important salience to maintaining peace and security in our hemisphere, right? The Monroe Doctrine may be old hat, but it's not clearly wrong. If we don't watch our own backyard, it's no surprise when other people start watching our backyard for us. It's no surprise the Russians are all over Venezuela. It's no surprise that the Iranians are getting involved down there. It's because we haven't done our partner own hemisphere. That doesn't mean we have to be in Haiti forever or even for a long period of time. What it does mean is it's not just about humanitarian supplies. It's about restoring peace and stability, allowing the Haitians to choose their own government, whether that's through uh, democracy or whatever methodology they choose, 
allowing them to have their decision about their government, but ensuring that there's peace and stability and then moving on. Yes, humanitarian aspects are a part of that, but they're not the only thing because there are security consequences to not acting. It's not just humanitarian issues that are in play here. And this isn't Somalia. This is Haiti. Grant, why don't we uh, shift over to the much easier topic of international climate change issues? Perfect. As we're recording this segment, John Kerry is meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to discuss climate issues. Uh, Last week, North America withstood a series of extreme weather phenomena, including Death Valley hitting a temperature of 130 degrees, which is the second highest ever recorded, and multiple cities, including Detroit and New York, uh, dealt with flooding that swamped highways and subways. So let's put the bottom line up front. Is climate change a national security issue? And does this designation matter? Or is it an argument about semantics? Amira, what do you think? I think wholeheartedly climate change is a national security issue. And I I think we should stop arguing about, you know, how we define it and really start rising to the challenge. You know, I think one of the key questions I have is, uh, you know, John Kerry's meeting with Lavrov, there's there's upcoming meetings about what we should talk to China about. I think the way to address this issue is less thinking about whether or not we define it as a national security issue and really start thinking about it as a moonshot issue. So, if we back in the 60s, uh, you know, thought about the space race as a national security issue, yes, it was a national security issue, but it was also sort of a nation defining whole of government and whole of politic mission to get out into space and be on the moon. And I think that's how we have to really start thinking about climate is there's breakthrough technologies that we need to be able to achieve. Um, and then, of course, there's there's lots of carbon cutting that has to be done. And so I think the mentality needs to be less about you know whether or not we designate this as a national security issue and how we think about this as like an issue that we can all galvanize around and really make sure every part of government's thinking about whether or not it's a national security apparatus or domestic policy apparatus, because the reality is it's both. Les, what do you think? Uh, national security issue, whole of government issue, whole of society issue, something we shouldn't be worried about. I don't think it's a national security issue per se. I think there are national security aspects to it, but I think there it is mainly an economic and development issue. Uh, I think we should be pretty hard-eyed about international agreements and make sure that while we want to address the pernicious effects of climate change, we also don't want it to negatively impact our economy any more than it absolutely has to. Uh, And further, I think we should be very careful in the way uh, we think about climate change issues. I worry a little bit that while the last administration didn't seem to address them at all, this one seems to be addressing them in more of a symbolic way than a real way. And I think sometimes that can be a big mistake. I think shutting down the Keystone Pipeline, which has a negligible effect on carbon emissions, was a big mistake, but it was an important signal to the administration's supporters. I don't think we can afford to do that in the international space, in particular in developing countries. If we're more interested in posing for holy pictures uh, and imposing policies on them that don't really impact their carbon emissions, but make us feel better, we would be putting them, those countries in a very bad spot, and we would be pushing them towards more the China model. So uh, I'm thinking specifically about the uh, Development Finance Corporation and other foreign assistance instruments. I hope that when we're thinking about climate change issues, we don't go too far. These countries need to grow. 
They need to be able to expand their energy production. They need to have a, a real electrical grid system. The U.S. has been promoting a Power Africa strategy for Sub-Saharan Africa very successfully for several administrations. I don't want us to lose that by being a little too pure on climate change issues. For example, we should be allowing countries to develop natural gas resources. The carbon impact there is relatively minimal. We should show some flexibility there so that we can help the poorest of the poor grow their way out of poverty. Les, you're getting ahead of my uh, my run of show. Can you dig a little bit more into that? So how do we prevent uh, countries that were seeking to assist in their development from looking at the China-India model? Go fast, go dirty, and then come to climate later? Well, you don't have to go fast and you don't have to go dirty, uh, but you do have to help countries develop in a positive, sustainable way that includes developing their power infrastructure, their energy infrastructure. And we should be very realistic about what they need. We may not want to see every country going going towards coal as their primary energy source, uh, but we shouldn't foreclose natural gas and some other sensible approaches while we're at it. I worry that this administration will go just a little bit too far. I think some of their instincts are very good. We should be building some of these uh, some of these understandings and these uh, principles into the work we do, but let's not go too far. That's my concern. And I think I worry that we're already seeing it with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is uh, has been an important component of U.S. foreign assistance. The Biden administration has has dictated that climate change concerns will be part of compacts going forward. It's okay to have climate change as part of those compacts, but that should be dictated by the countries we're working with. The whole model of MCC is that we go to developing countries and see what they feel they need to grow and work with them on those on those uh, policy areas once they've met certain thresholds with us. To For us to say it's climate change has to be a part of that is us imposing a new model there. I think that's going too far. So Jamil, is it a whole of government issue? Is it a development economic issue? What do you think? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of both. Look, uh, climate change is real, right? Let's be clear. Uh, and these people who think it's not a real thing are, are, are just wrong on the science. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a, it's a massive national security issue that requires the military or intelligence community to be directly involved. There are national security implications as less is laid out uh, of climate change, refugee flows, uh, moving populations, the like that have a national security impact and things that we need to address and manage. That being said, I think it's much more important that we focus on the results of climate change and addressing those, right? Rather than sort of get in this TikTok of, well, we need to go, you know, tell this country what to do with their economy, tell this country what to do with their economy. If they want our support, they can't engage in these behaviors. I think Les is exactly right that if we want to raise the standard of living in the globe, the reality is that the, that the, that the globe is going to need cheap, effective power. And if we're not, if we're not willing to go uh, and roll out nuclear in a big way, which we are currently not, right, and is, and is a challenge in some places, and if we're not willing to go identify other methods for doing this, right, we're going to continue to see our, both our allies and smaller nations relying on other providers, whether that's China, Russia, Iran, right? And, and that's a huge problem. And we, we cannot allow that to happen. We cannot allow this fealty to the idea that, well, climate change is such a massive issue that without massive global change on a scale that we can't even effectively carry out, right, that we're going to have some huge crisis. The fact is, there are implications. We need to manage those. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the world's economy is dependent on fossil fuels today. And to the extent that we can get as independent as we can, we should work on that. But the reality is that's not tomorrow. It's not 10 years from now. And it's not anywhere on the time frame 
They're currently being these these sort of theoretical timeframes that are completely unrealistic um, and and undermine uh, the idea of global development, which is a critical national security goal for the United States. I'll further one thing you were saying, Jamil, then push back on one thing that you're saying. You know, thing one is I think it's true that when we talk about climate change in the context of national security, we often think of it as um, lots of sticks, very few carrots, right? Like, can we go to countries that are developing and impose caps on carbon emissions while they're trying to develop and make use of, you know, cheap energy that that we've had the advantage of using for 150, 200 years now. Um, And I actually think the way that we should think about this is like, let's, let's create some carrots, right? So one of the reasons that solar is affordable on a much faster timeline than anyone would have anticipated two decades ago is because China really pioneered cheap solar cells. Um, and we can do the same. We can continue to push on that innovation. We continue to find new innovations in areas like nuclear Jamil, um, and then also um, and other, you know, other options for being able to get power in a more distributed. For example, if you talk about areas of sub-Saharan Africa that are more rural, you know, solar panels actually might be much more effective than a more centralized grid system because they're easier to access. And so, you know, being able to think of ways that we can use climate change as part of the plan for developing or for helping developing countries continue to develop and get access to cheap power is I think the way we should be thinking about this, not as a a punishment, but as an incentive for how they might be able to grow more quickly. Um, On the other hand, you know, I think it's really important that we ring the alarm bell on climate change as a really deep issue. It's not, it's not just something where the implications are that far off. You know, I think as someone who's born and raised in California and, and Jamil, it sounds like you have big roots in LA. I mean, when I grew up in California, fire season was not something that registered my mind. You couldn't have you couldn't have asked me when fire season was. Now, you know, it starts in August and lasts for three or four months a year. And if you visit in California in October anytime in the last few years, you know it's dystopian out there. You have to wear a mask. The smoke is insane. Uh, and it's only getting worse. You know, that North America is in the middle of the biggest mega drought that's ever been seen in history. Um, and this has implications not just for you know, fires, but also knock on effects for drought, uh, for our water supply, where, you know, the snowpack is 0% for the first time um, on June 1st than it's ever been. And so we have less access to clean water. Like, this is serious, serious stuff. And and the timeline is urgent. You know, I I guess I look, I share your view that that, the carrots are the right approach here, right? And that that sticks are not effective. Of course, the problem is this administration, like the Obama administration before it and the Paris Climate Change Accords, are really all about sticks and not carrots. And that's the fundamental challenge. So if uh, if we were to talk about carrots, that's great. I support that. I think that as less is laid out, and as you as you mentioned, Amira, uh, there are important things we can do through development finance to help that. And also innovations here, 100% agree that that's, that's the right approach. I guess what I'd say on your point about, about uh, California fires and the like is, and, and they do have a long history in, in LA, I don't think there's really clear evidence tying uh, the current drought that we're seeing and the snowpack and the fires in California to long-term climate change. I think that science, is, it, it's not clear to me that that's got a basis in clear science, right? So while I, while I absolutely believe in climate change, this idea that the current fire season over the last three years or whatever it might have been, is a, is a result of climate change? I think that's, a, that's that maybe a step too far. So Rob, let's bring you into the conversation. Since your focus you know, these days is on the homeland front and resiliency seems to be the conversation around every homeland security issue that we discuss, do you think this is really a time where we should focus on resiliency or do you think we need to go on the offensive abroad on climate change? 
I, I think you have to take a bit of an all of the above approach. Um, we, the United States alone is not responsible for climate change. The, the United States alone cannot solve climate change. And even if we take all of the steps responsible within our own territory, uh, we're, we're still going to have the effects within our within our borders. So we, we've got to do all of the above. To the wildfire issue, it, it's definitely... Uh, most people view that as a local issue or a state issue, but it's definitely a national issue we need to be addressing that pulls resources from across the lower 48, especially uh, to fight locally within uh, Idaho, Montana, California, anywhere where there's a wildfire. Uh, so we've got to we've got to be more cognizant that in this day and age, you know, all politics is local, but all a lot of the issues can be national. So, Amira, I, I really want to dig a little bit at the the Democratic position of, you know, we should be going really hard against climate change because, you know, climate isn't the only thing on the table. Two of the three biggest carbon emitters are Russia and China. And I'm not sure that climate is the number one issue we have to discuss with those guys. How do you think John Kerry and and the rest of the NSC and the White House should be balancing this as opposed to short-term gains, whether they be on nuclear weapons or little green men in Ukraine or human rights in Xinjiang? I'm sorry, little green men in Ukraine? Hackers? Is that what we're calling them? Um, you know, I think it's a false narrative that we have to, in order to make progress in the fight against climate change internationally, we have to offer concessions to Russia and China. Because the reality is, you know, climate change is an issue that plagues those countries pretty seriously as well. And I think China or Russia actually finally admitted uh, that human human caused climate change is real. Now, what's tough is Russia is one of the few countries in the world that might actually stand to benefit from some of the impacts of climate change. But I, I don't actually think, you know, if I was thinking about the Biden administration's response to climate change, that, you know, offering concessions to countries like China and Russia would be a core part of my strategy. What I would do instead is actually think of a really aggressive, bold vision for what a net zero future looks like and think about how the United States is going to lead in the global community to establish that future. Um, And so what does that mean? That means incredibly high investment in, um, you know, clean energy sources. I think nuclear should absolutely be a big part of that, um, as well as figuring out ways that we can lower the costs of of, um, other clean technologies like solar, like wind. Um, and then I also think that means huge, heavy investments in trying to figure out cleaner technologies for things like manufacturing, um, like things for ag- agriculture. These are huge, bold bets that actually require government more so than almost any other VC investment, because when you're thinking about something like clean concrete or clean cement, which most people don't realize is a giant emitter of um, carbon. Um, these are 10, 20 year bets. And so if you think of a huge initiative to be able to say that we're going to have clean cement in the next 15 years, that's a bold vision that the government can help set. And so I think we should be leading on that front. And then finally, I think the other half of the coin is thinking about um, carbon capture technologies, which have to be a part of uh, the climate change equation. And so I think if the United States government is really bold about the forward vision that we set, and we're thoughtful about how to mobilize people internally towards achieving those goals using U.S. uh, resources, we can really marshal in and take leadership in a new era in where we have a net zero uh, carbon neutral world. And then we can start enlisting other people 
um, or other countries into our action because we've actually demonstrated bold leadership. So I don't think the way to do this is to go out and offer a bunch of sticks and you know tell countries you've been you cannot have the benefits of developing like we've had. I think the answer is to be able to offer solutions to the global stage and give them solutions for how they can continue to develop, but do so in a clean way because they're going to feel the impact of climate change anyway, and and they would love to switch to a clean future uh, if we can give them an answer for how to do so. So Jamil, last word on this. Was President Obama right all along to use the government's authority to support U.S. innovation by buying into Solyndra? <laughs> I mean, that I'm not going to walk into that one. Uh, look, I think that I think that the U.S. government has a lot it can do to support uh, R&D efforts uh, in this area, uh, like other areas of innovation. I think that the U.S. can and should lead um, in this space. This is clearly an issue the globe is going to have to grapple with. Um, uh, climate change is a thing. Um, and, and why not lead in that area? Why not create economic development here in the United States by doing the basic science research and work we need to do uh, to help do that? Whether we should in, help fund specific companies um, or back those companies, uh, particularly when, they're, when they end up failing, I think is, is a separate distinct question. Uh, but look, I think at the end of the day, the takeaway from my, all this conversation seems to me uh, to be an agreement amongst the conservatives and liberals alike here. Climate change is a thing. It's a problem. Uh, it's something we need to address. It has national security implications. Uh, and, that, and that positive uh, economically reinforcing measures is the right way to go. Um, and that signing up to a bunch of sticks um, and coming after countries uh, who are in the developmental phase is the wrong approach. And so if we're all agreed on that, you know, hallelujah, let's go do that thing. Uh, unfortunately, that hasn't been the, uh, the, the, the policy of this administration, nor was it the policy of the Obama administration for eight years before it. All right, let's move on to our final topic, Afghanistan. Rob, President Biden went out in public last week to defend his decision to pull U.S. military forces out of Afghanistan. He said he didn't want to commit to another generation of Americans to fight there. He cited the over 2,000 Americans who have died in Afghanistan and the over 20,000 Americans who were wounded there in the last 20 years. It was an emotional speech, maybe kind of glossed over the current situation a little bit where our footprint is not nearly what it used to be. One of the things that he did say, though, Rob, was that if a threat develops in Afghanistan that is uh, anathema to our interests, that the U.S. will be able to respond and be able to take action to eliminate that threat. What's your take on that part of his statement? Where from, Mr. President? Where do we have a base in the region where, whereby you can respond in a reasonable amount of time to address threat? And to be honest, because we just pulled out of Bagram, because we gave up K2, there's not. Pakistan is not friendly enough. We don't have basing rights in India. It's confusing to me. Uh, we can keep a carrier stationed out there forever and ever, but uh, it's still, if memory serves, it's at least a two-hour uh, response time from from those those waters into uh, central Afghanistan, and then even longer when you're talking helicopter response time with uh, SEAL teams or, or counterterrorism teams on board. Um, so it, it's a tough question to for for them to to ask. Um, where are we going to respond from? We don't have any significant basing other than Doha or uh, Gulf region spaces now. So it, I don't see how that's going to happen. Um, I, when he was a senator, if memory serves, um, mid-2000s, uh, his idea for countering a, a, a surge or a reinvestment of American troops into Afghanistan uh, was to pare down and, and, and to leave a permanent, in effect, a permanently stationed counterterrorism force. I, I would buy that. That would be fine. Because then we've got somebody who is regionally focused, regionally based, uh, understands the terrain, has assets and resources available to them 
to respond when uh, the next Al-Qaeda cell pops its ugly head up. Um, we are giving that away right now and just leaving the playing field altogether in that region. So I, I, challenge, I challenge them to understand, to, to come back to us as the American public and say, here's how we will respond when those uh, heads pop up again. Mira, one of the other issues in Afghanistan is, at least to the extent we can see the writing on the wall right now, with the Taliban on the move, taking over more and more territory, the, the very real possibility that the Taliban will taking over, be taking over much of, much of Afghanistan in the next few months, and the implication that that has for human rights in the country. Um, the last time the Taliban was in charge, uh, there was basically no education for women. Uh, since the U.S. has been in Afghanistan, that's changed radically. Uh, there's been a, a blossoming of uh, uh, human rights and opportunities for women in particular. But what's your assessment of the way the human rights community is, is reacting now? And what do you think the challenges are for them as this very likely scenario of the Taliban taking over in the future? How is that going to roll out? Yeah, man, this is one where I throw out my hands and I say, I don't, I don't really know. I don't have a great answer for you there. I mean, I think as someone who's speaking as someone who grew up in the sort of post 9-11 era where you know, 9-11 and Afghanistan were some of the, the first salient foreign policy memories that I have. I think most people uh, that I know who are my generation and care about human rights are um, deeply concerned about, you know, the potential for human rights uh, abuses to crop up a lot, a lot in Afghanistan, um, you know, hate the idea of increased um, you know, abuses against women's rights in particular, and then also just don't want to see the United States, you know, stay, stay in, a, in a forever war. And so, you know, I, I think my inclination here is to look at examples of how we've been able to further strengthen human rights in other countries around the world where they're also severe and figure out if there's a way to be able to, you know, try to use those best practices in Af- Afghanistan. Um, but, but the honest truth is, is I don't I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Wes? Uh, I wish I had a good answer, Amira. You know, I was I was really hoping that you would provide some some sunshine on this. It's hard not to think things look look very dark in Afghanistan and are and are going to get worse, and that this is going to rebound against uh, the president. Frankly, I think it was a bad decision. Uh, and while I don't want to kind of relitigate the the overall national security decision to pull out from Afghanistan, we've talked about this a couple of times before on the podcast. Uh, I do think it was a bad decision. The U.S. footprint there. Was was not very big. Uh, Yes, we had people in harm's way, uh, but the numbers of casualties are completely different than they were at the beginning of the engagement in Afghanistan. You look to other places where we've sustained a presence, whether it's Germany, Japan, Korea, other places, we've been able to do it in a sustainable way. We've been able to build an international system around it that made sense for us, that makes sense for both our values and our interests. I think that was doable in Afghanistan. It's shocking to me how quickly things are changing on the ground with, with our withdrawal happening. I did not think it would be just a matter of days after the bulk of our forces were gone that the Taliban would take over huge swaths of the country. It's, it's, it, is, it is very distressing. And it seems to be making that scenario I outlined earlier all the more likely. And I think it's going to be a very bad news story for the administration in the next year or two. Frankly, Amira, I really hope I'm wrong. And I hope uh, that there can be some sort of balance in that country and we won't see the horrors we saw before. But I'm, it's hard not to think that that's going to happen. Jamil, I'm, do you want to weigh in here? Yeah, I mean, look, I actually, I'm actually surprised, Les, that you're so shocked uh, about what's, what's happening here and how quickly it's happened. I mean, this was completely predictable, right? We knew this going in. It was clear uh, after eight years of President Obama, four years of Donald Trump, and an, and an incoming Biden administration. In fact, there was hope that the Biden administration might 
see the writing on the wall and take action to not uh, go down the, the road that President Obama and President Trump had laid out, which was ending all endless wars and, and, and retreating precipitously. And yet, not only did they not do that, they did the opposite. They accelerated into it, making the politically bizarre decision to announce a, a complete withdrawal of American troops on the very anniversary that 3,000 Americans, you know, 3,000 Americans were killed in the United States by a plan hatched in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And so this idea somehow that uh, they couldn't see the handwriting on the wall, they were negotiating, I mean, like the Trump administration before them and the, Biden, and the Biden administration before them, the Biden administration was negotiating with the Taliban themselves, the very people who hosted Osama bin Laden uh, on the eve of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and who refused to hand them over. And so this idea somehow, nobody saw it coming. It's a big shock that the Taliban were going to succeed and accelerate across, uh, across land. Maybe it's happening faster than anybody thought. But nobody thought it was six months away, a year away. Everyone knew it was going to happen, right? They've now taken Kandahar. They've now taken Badakhshan, right? They've got huge swaths of territory. They're going to reimpose their, their catastrophic uh, views on not just women, but minority populations, ethnic and religious minorities across Afghanistan. And they're going to permit the, the, the extreme elements, right, of ISIS, Al-Qaeda in the Khorasan to return to power. They keep saying, oh, yeah, we won't do that. It'll be fine. Trust us. It was all great last time we were in power, right? I mean, it's just the, the idea that we couldn't see this coming is ridiculous. This idea somehow that the president trotted out that this is to protect American lives. Let's be clear. We haven't had over 100 casualties in Afghanistan since 2013, the middle of the Obama administration. Jamil, I think, we I, think, I, think, I think the concern, at least my surprise, is not with what's happening per se. It's with how quickly it's happening. I mean, we have been spending a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort training Afghan government troops to deal with exactly this situation. And it appears not to work at all. It does. It, it makes me think. Uh, and and I'm, and I'm not meaning to challenge your thesis here, but it does make me think that we need to look very carefully at our tra- train and equip programs. Are they effective? Are they doing the things that we think they can do? Uh, and if they're not, we should be reformatting them. We're spending a lot of money trying to do things that don't appear to work. I think, I think they well, need a, a very hard-eyed review. Can I just ask a question, mostly from education, if I understand um, the idea behind keeping a U.S. footprint in Afghanistan, which is um, what, what is the nature of the, secu- like the U.S. national security threat that might emanate from Afghanistan with our pullout? Um, and how severe is it compared to what we might have seen five years ago, 15 years ago? Um, you know, is there a compelling reason that we believe that the chances of severe attack on American soil will increase um, starting today because we've pulled out? Yeah, I, I think so, Amira. In fact, in fact, all you need to do is to look at recent history with the Obama administration's precipitous pullout from Iraq. They implemented the same policy the Biden administration is now implementing here, which is we got to be out on a date certain, regardless of security commitments we made, regardless of anything else, we're getting out. And what happened? ISIS grew and expanded. They came across the border. And sure enough, within, within, within months and years, there were threats to American personnel there. There were threats to the embassy there. There were threats to minority populations there. And there were threats to the American homeland. And what happened? We had to get right back in, deploy American troops. It was harder, more expensive, more costly in terms of lives and treasure. And we, I predict we will be back in Afghanistan before the end of this administration. And by the way, the way in which we left Afghanistan abandoning three separate security commitments we've made to the security of Afghan forces and the Afghan and the Afghan government, sneaking out under the cover of night. This is not what a superpower does. It's pathetic. It's embarrassing. And it is not the right policy for the United States. 
And the fact that President Biden, of all people, right, we could have expected this from the Obama administration, which wanted to get out for a long time. We even could have expected this in the Trump administration. President Biden came in saying he's going to take a hard-eyed look at American national security policy. And for him to simply kowtow uh, to the to the worst parts of his base, and frankly, the, the Republican base too, is an embarrassment. All right, Grant, I think we leave it there. Yeah. With that, let's go on to our last segment of the day where we talk about all the things we've been following. Rob, what are you following this week? Yeah, so this week I'm going I'm to follow the Ethiopia crisis. Uh, there's an internal civil war going on right now. It's created about 2 million displaced persons, 400,000 people moving across borders. Uh, most of the country now in famine conditions. And just watching that as the world systems are already stretched uh, post-coronavirus with uh, Venezuela, with uh, the Northern Triangle, other areas, uh, it's tough to respond to yet another crisis outbreak, uh, especially in a poor country like Ethiopia. Uh, So let's continue to watch that, uh, see what our allies next door in Egypt are doing. And hopefully that situation stabilizes fairly quickly. So Jamil, what are you following this week? So Grant, thanks. Uh, this week, I'm following the attack on uh, a number of companies uh, by uh, by a ransomware group or an affiliate of a ransomware group uh, operating out of Russia, R-Evil. Uh, this is the second major attack we've seen coming out of the R-Evil group uh, in, in just a few months. Um, uh, the JBS hack coming before this one. I'm in the third major ransomware incident, uh, just again in two months uh, with the Colonial Pipeline hack and now and now this one. Uh, what we saw here was uh, an effort by these R Evil affiliates to go into uh, Kaseya, a, uh, a security software provider uh, that provides software to uh, uh, manage security providers. These are companies that provide security services downstream to small businesses, medium-sized businesses. And so we, what ended up happening here was the supply chain attack allowed uh, these ransomware actors to get into over a thousand small businesses, uh, medium-sized businesses, and essentially hijack their systems. Uh, encrypting them and and extracting ransoms anywhere from $45,000 all the way up to a million dollars. They were kind enough to offer the entire decryption key uh, for the entire operation uh, for $70 million. um, And that's still out there. Uh, Obviously, the concern here uh, with these consistent series of ransomware attacks and and a larger or sort of evolving pandemic uh, of of cyber attacks uh, emanating from, uh, from foreign nation states, in particular, in this case, Russia, uh, is the problem that we haven't yet found an effective way to defend ourselves on one hand uh, or to uh, deter uh, behavior by non-nation state actors, uh, sometimes uh, funded by, supported by, or at least with the tacit knowledge of uh, foreign governments. Uh, President Biden has raised this issue now a second time uh, with President Putin in Russia um, and indicated that the U.S. Uh, will respond if and when it's finds appropriate. Of course, the challenge there is that that doesn't seem to be deterring uh, or encouraging at least uh, President Putin to actually take action there's apparently going to be some sort of a, a joint committee getting together to see if they if we can't address this. Uh, but that's clearly not enough. And what really needs to happen here is we need to punch back. We need to punch back directly against the Russian government and make clear to them that they're going to bear the consequences of actions emanating from their territory uh, if this continues, particularly if it goes after American critical infrastructure. And of course, we got to get better defending ourselves. That involves government and industry working together. Uh, the Biden administration has appointed a series of really terrific cyber leaders um, and has a new executive order out um, on, on federal government defense and federal contractors. Uh, but of course, more needs to be done. Uh, industry and government to get closer together, working closer together and really collectively defending against these kind of threats. So uh, more to come on that, but, uh, but yet another uh, cyber threat uh, in our midst. Last, what are you following this week? First of all, I just want to note, I liked hearing Jim Evil talk about our evil. Uh, that, was, that was good for me, at least. I am tracking events uh, new today in Cuba, where we've learned that there are massive protests across the country. 
uh, Cuba, in addition to its usual repression and corruption issues, is facing rolling electricity blackouts, a lack of vaccines, and a, a kind of a general um, uh, sense of malaise among the country about their leadership. It is a great opportunity for the Biden administration to exploit uh, weakness in Havana. Havana has overextended itself by supporting the Maduro regime in Venezuela. It's very much active in supporting uh, uh, Iran and Russia as they work to bolster Venezuela. So I hope the Biden administration can think creatively about the things that are going on in Cuba right now to achieve some U.S. goals in the region. Great. So this week, I'm following the crisis in Lebanon. Fuel supplies are incredibly low and violence has spiked. Uh, The value of the Lebanese pound has dropped almost 90 percent in the last 18 months. UNICEF has put out a report saying that nearly 80% of households in Lebanon either do not have food or do not have enough money to afford it. These issues, of course, come on top of an explosion last year in Beirut, the pandemic, major power outages, and a caretaker government. Uh, The current prime minister has said that the country is a few days away from social explosion. The U.S. ambassador to Lebanon has been having meetings with Saudi and French diplomats to try and make progress on what seems to be an intractable set of problems. With Lebanon's geography abutting both Syria and Israel, having a failed state would have major ramifications across the region. The United States may want to leave the Middle East, but that seems like a pipe dream at this point. Amira, what are you following this week? So I've been following uh, a report by the Wall Street Journal this morning about ByteDance, reportedly pulling a scheduled IPO from the New York Stock Exchange earlier this year. So apparently ByteDance, um, one of the largest and fastest growing startups in the world, uh, a company behind TikTok, was planning going into 2021 to IPO. And then around March, uh, sort of got warnings from Chinese regulators who were concerned about data security, should they list um, on an American or Hong Kong exchange, um, and just decided that it was not worth their while to go ahead with this IPO. this happens, of course, in contrast with Didi a couple of weeks ago, choosing to go public on American exchange. And then a week later, uh, Chinese regulators growing concerned um, suddenly about uh, potential data security issues and choosing to delist Didi from uh, the app store and stop Didi from accepting any new users. So really cracking down um, after a company chose, I guess, to not heed warnings about potential data privacy issues with going public on an American exchange. It's an interesting trend, um, and I'm not sure what to make of it other than the fact that, you know, obviously tensions between the United States and China are growing, and there's increased uh, hesitation, not just about Americans uh, wondering about what's happening with their data um, on Chinese uh, servers, uh, but also vice versa. It also seems like, you know, maybe a Chinese step towards really thinking about whether or not they want to entangle themselves or, or want China Chinese companies to be um, entangled with American exchanges. I don't know. I I don't know what this means from a regulatory perspective or what Biden and the administration should be doing in response. Um, But I I can only imagine sort of the impact on markets will be um, chilling. You know, you'll see see way fewer American investors interested in in, um, joining up on these Chinese IPOs or investing in privates abroad uh, if Chinese regulators are going to 
continue to crack down on, on um, IPOs and just Chinese interaction in U.S. markets more broadly. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonmatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Les Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.